All right, welcome. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jeff. How are you? I am doing great. How was your, uh, how was your weekend? You have a lot of activities uh, scheduled? Too, yeah, too busy. You know, I need a weekend from this weekend. Uh, kids <laughs> have like a, this Korean school they go to on Saturday to learn Korean culture um, and a little bit of language. And then uh, I had a little HOA meeting that I went to to help um, explain this attendance zone changes that we've got going uh, on the school board. So um, a lot of things. And uh, oh, and there was a pro-life rally I went to. So what about you? Do you read any books? Uh, I did. So originally we were supposed to go out of town this weekend for Julian Oliver's birthday for a concert festival, but obviously the hurricane had other plans for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, we spent most of the weekend uh, just doing family stuff. And then Sunday was just lazy day. And yeah, I actually, you know, the book I'm reading right now is uh, Benjamin Franklin, um, The First American by H.W. Brands. And I, it's really fascinating because like when I read uh, biographies, I typically hone in on like the, the, the history of the family, right? Who is he connected with? Mm-hmm. And, and Benjamin's father had like 16 or 17 children. Uh, Benjamin had a closer relationship with one of his older brothers. And it's just different than a lot of the other founders and how their relationships are. So I found that really fascinating. And that's right, because he had a brother who had the um, printing press, right? And that's kind of got, got him into printing. Yeah. So uh, Ben actually signed a like, it was a nine or 12 year like apprenticeship with his brother. And he's like in contract, contract. And he signed this at 12 years old. And like he can't get out of it, I think, until he was 21 or something, which I just found like crazy but uh you know and it, it was family too <laughs> they were like holding him hostage <laughs> that's why you got to read the fine print that's right but you know it's it's perfect that i happen to be reading this because i text you today and i said what do you want to do the podcast about or actually i think you text me and uh you said a republic if you can keep it uh which obviously benjamin franklin said and you said should we get rid of it so why why would you pose that question john this comes from a conversation I had at lunch uh, this past week with a couple colleagues. And I think, you know, we look at society as a whole and we say, like, uh, we can always find problems with it. Um, and it's really easy to say, well, well, if we only had a different system, we could solve all these problems. And I think that utopian idea is so prevalent in humanity from from the beginning of just like, well, if we just if we could just throw away what we had and try to fix it, uh, everything would be so much better. And um, yeah, there's like uh, Thomas More's the book Utopia, where it's, it's kind of a satire because he he trying to invent this world that actually can't exist. And if you look at the, the root of Utopia, it's a place that isn't isn't there. Uh, I believe the topia, topia is like the city or people, and the U is like it's it's not. Um, and I, the discussion at the lunch table is kind of what I've seen echoed so many times is like. Is our American Republic uh, fixable? Is it worth keeping, um, or is it something we should throw away and go into some other system? And since you know, it's, I work with a bunch of Catholics, it obviously goes to this whole integralist idea, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's almost like going back to a, a monarchy, a, a papacy, or something. And um, you know, I, I was just pushing back. I was like, and I think we've got a great system here. But I mean, there's obviously flaws in it, and I think even the people who wrote the Constitution know there's flaws in it, but. They uh, they thought this was the best we got, and I, I would say it's, it's probably the best we've got still. Um, and I think if any of the governments have come out about since then have only um, 
proven that they're they're just not up to the challenge of of uh, preserving freedom, of allowing for happiness, and for allowing people to try things and and uh, and thrive. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Republican government, right? <laughs> I write about it a lot. Um, so, like, my biggest thing about Republican government is it, especially with a nation as large as we are. Now, I know that was the debate uh, pre-Constitution and during the Constitution is, is a republic good for a large nation? And I think the way that our system is set up proves that it, it is and it has worked. Um, now, you could say, you look at the arguments that are being made against it right now. And they're being made against it in a situation where we're not actually functioning as a Republican government. So people mm -hmm. don't really know what Republican government is. And, and there was a, a great quote from um, Benjamin Franklin, actually. And, you know, he started the first fire department um, in Philadelphia. And this is, a, this is like a, something he ran in the paper about the fire department. And there's just a, a sentence in here that I thought perfectly encapsulates Republican government, the idea behind it. And it says... And if more than one of us shall be in danger at the same time, we will divide ourselves as near as may be to be equally helpful. And that's kind of the way that I perceive uh, your Republican government is you break those groups down as small as possible so you can be as helpful as possible to as many people. Um, mm -hmm. And there was another one um, by uh, Descartes. Uh, <laughs> how do you pronounce his name? Because I'm saying it wrong. Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes. Okay. Um, and he said, divide each difficulty in as many parts as possible and necessary to resolve it. And I think the argument they hear against Republican government right now is that let's abolish the filibuster. Let's get rid of the, um, the electoral college. Let's make everything, you know, basically mob rule, which our founders were very scared of. And you're basically taking everything into two large groups and thinking that that's mm -hmm. going to work. But if you break those groups down smaller and smaller and smaller, so they're each as helpful to one another, um, while also preserving, like you're going to get better preserved individual liberty in a small group than you are with a large group. And that's what Republican government does. That's why it's so great. And that's why we should absolutely keep it. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I believe it's Descartes. He comes up with the, the principle of induction, which is something you learn a lot in computer science and, and math. But it is that idea of trying to get to the base point, that sort of, that fundamental unit, and then using that and sort of logically proving that you can move on for that so it's um i never really thought of it as sort of a republic of republics but that's a perfect encapsulation of kind of the, the mathematical principle behind that um and I, maybe that that just is the the mirror image of the beauty of the republican system and the the naturalness of it is that you can model it mathematically uh, yeah I, and you know i've i noticed that studying so like when i started studying this now for those of you who don't know me i'm 35 years old i didn't study in history i just picked up a few books a few years ago and I really fell in love with two things, Republican government and capitalism. And they both kind of function the same way. They're both about pushing that uh, responsibility all the way down to like the lowest level possible and, allow, and creating opportunity, creating opportunities to be heard and create um, for better, you know, a better way of life. Um, and yeah, it is so crazy how natural everything kind of flows together. Because like I tell people, uh, capitalism, you know, uh, the Adam Smith book, uh, Theory of, uh, not Theory of, uh, Invisible Hand, right? Re yeah. Wealth of Nations, right? And his Invisible Hand, that was like, he just observed it, right? Like he just observed nature. That wasn't like a set of principles he created. He just wrote around them. Mm, yeah, that's true. It's, it's almost like watching bird watching or something, but it's people watching. 
Yeah. And that's what I found about a lot of those, uh, those men at the time is like Adam Smith, James Madison. You go even to like Teddy Roosevelt. They were all very much observers of life and always like tracking things, keeping, tra- um, you know, notating and learning from those. That's um. I so that's what Jefferson did, right? He had all his notebooks and stuff, and I don't know if he ever used it, but he would. He took the temperature uh, every hour or something, and and recorded it, and uh, kept track of the weather and everything. Like you know, there there is a beauty in trying to, um, you know, in an effort to improve people's lives, trying to understand them and empathize with them. Yeah, I mean, he, and you know what he also did? He I believe Jefferson was the one that he put his every morning. He put his feet in like cold water to like get up to like i guess shock his body i don't remember what it was but yeah i mean they they observe their own lives to understand it better so they could share that with humanity um and you know that's why they were great leaders right Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but you know back to the republican government thing i mean it's it's about being able to serve as many people as possible and not allowing one group to take over another and i think republican government is fantastic for that so yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, you can like you can serve on the school board and you can help in a small way, or you can serve in um, Congress or the Senate and help in a large way. But really, part of the challenge is trying to figure out what's the appropriateness at each of those levels. Um, you know, the the idea of subsidiarity and solidarity, where solidarity is you got the one person at the top making all the decisions, and then subsidiarity is where you like, in, as Descartes talks about, you break it down to the smallest unit. So you can get the the people closest to the problem solving it, um, and I you know I think you and I would agree that the the quote Republican government that we've got now has sort of morphed into a solidarity where um, people far far away from those problems are not actually the ones uh, solving it. That they're, they're just they're perhaps solving what they think is the problem in their head without actually knowing what the problem is. And uh, I guess it goes back to that question: like, are your lights on? Like, what is the real problem you're trying to solve? Um, and I think, you know, you've talked about 435, that number, uh, so many times. And I think, um, we kind of dance around it and we have got ideas like, oh, campaign finance will fix our problems. But in reality, it's just, um, we can't get rid of bad members of Congress and we're stuck with them. (laughs) Well, why is that? Like, so one of the things that I was thinking about, we were talking about is what should a member of Congress be? Right. What should the president mm-hmm. be? What should a senator be? What should a Supreme Court justice be? Because we have these ideas. But who told us these ideas, John? Where did all of our ideas about what these men or women should be? And that is the parties did. The Republican Democratic parties control the information to us. So I was thinking, I was like, you know, with all the reading of history and the leaders that we've had, I was like, what do I think they would want? Right. In a congressional mm-hmm. rep, in a president. Um, senator and supreme court justice so uh i think we're for our next segment that's what we're going to do right we're going to break it down and kind of share what we what we believe you should be looking for in these in these uh leaders <laughs> well not just what we believe but like our observations from from reading people and looking at the system you know this isn't just stuff we invented whole cloth this is right. uh what we think we know how we understand the problems and how we think we can fix those problems. Absolutely. Um, do you want to lead off? Do you want to start with like the big kahuna, the, the president? Uh, I'd be honored. Be one of my... <laughs> well, and, and so first, let me, let me uh, start with uh, both the president and congressional rep are elected directly by the people, right? Senators are as mm-hmm. well, but we're going <laughs> to 
we're not going to pick that way. Um, I'm going to indirectly talk about how bad that's a bad problem. Exactly. And then, uh, so now most Americans today look towards the president to solve their problems. I think that's a big mistake. I think it should be the con- uh, congressional rep. And typically I would lead with congressional rep because of this reason. However, since most Americans look towards the president, we're going to start with him, who I think should mm-hmm. be less important than your member of Congress, by the way. But since most people see it this way, we're going to kind of conform a little bit today and start with the president. What do you think a president well, should be like? I'll tell you what I don't think it should be. It should, it should not be a popularity contest. And like, uh, <laughs> what is, is it going to make me feel good? And then, I mean, I, that's unfortunately what it's kind of devolved out into. Um, I would say you can look at some of the, the best presidents and uh, George Washington has to be that number one. And he was accomplished in a certain sense. You know, he... Um, did a lot of things, tried a lot of things. And he was a surveyor, uh, ran a plantation, uh, so involved in business, involved in commerce. Um, he ended up uh, leading the Revolutionary War effort uh, on the on the ground, and so he had experience with men and uh, trying to lead them, trying to help guide them. He had experience with adversity. Um, <clears throat> I think living in the Virginia aristocracy was probably not uh, the toughest life, but you can imagine that when you're stuck at Valley Forge in the middle of a war that is just not looking so good, you know, that the ability to keep going in there to try to comfort the men that are following you and to try and improve their lives. I think that's a, a key skill that you need to bring to the presidency because so much of what the president should be doing um, is executing the laws, as we, we've mentioned many times, but doing that in service of people, you know, the president, uh, is not the president so that he can get a book deal after he leaves office and buy a mansion on Martha's Vineyard and uh, a mansion in Georgetown. Like um, the president really, I think has to step into that role for the four or eight years or shorter if, if they're for whatever reason um, and try to faithfully execute the laws. And that means serving the people of the country um, and, you know, going in there as best as possible and trying to, um, keep our country afloat and, and be available and, and kind of be that point person, if you will. And I think another great example is Lincoln. Um, he obviously became president in an incredibly difficult time. And I think some of the, the best qualities of him were that he wasn't uh, ego-driven. Um, he, you know, he had ideas, but he also knew that he needed great advisors and great advice. And so yeah. he stacked his cabinet with people that saw eye to eye with him, eye to eye with him ideologically and then also didn't see eye to eye with him ideologically and push back on things because he knew that he didn't want a bunch of yes men. He needed people to um, help shape his opinion on things and to test his ideas. Um, and the, the best way to test an idea before you put it into practice is to float it by people. Um, and then he also wasn't he wasn't vindictive. You know, if, if people crossed him or did things that made him look bad, um, so many times he would write a write a letter and say like, can you believe this? And then just not send it because he knew that he was, he had, you know, it wasn't about him. Right. It was about the United States. It was about serving people. Um, and I think, I think that's missing so much in, in our current executives. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about how do I, how do I further my own brand? Yeah. How do I get a podcast out of this? Yeah. I mean, well, and you know, you mentioned Washington and Lincoln, and you, you mentioned Lincoln's cabinet and how they pitted ideas. Washington's cabinet was the same thing, right? You, I mean, you had Hamilton mm-hmm. and That's Jefferson true. in the same cabinet. And I think if you look at both of those cabinets, and I've you know studied history, those are two of the best cabinets we've ever had. 
like just some of the most talented people because you literally took the most talent on both sides and you, you stuck yep. it in the room realistically. And when I say both sides for the like the Lincoln cabinet, I'm talking about like both sides of the very divided Republican Party. Obviously, the Democratic Party wasn't really in there, but they did bring Andrew Johnson in as vice president. Um, so some of the things that I wrote down for president, right? I want my president to be virtuous. I want mm-hmm. my president to be an excellent communicator. This is very important. Uh, I want my president to be pragmatic, open-minded, have a good temper, um, but doesn't get pushed around, right? And mm-hmm. I think both of the leaders you just talked about encapsulates a lot of that, right? Um, what both Washington and Lincoln had the temperament that they were calm and reserved, but they had a little bit of a temper, you know, at times, and they could mm-hmm. share that every once in a while. Um, and then they were, you know, I don't know how great if if being a great communicator to a large body was their expertise, especially with Washington. But I think on an individual level, Washington was a fantastic communicator, right? And that's really important when you're leading a divided cabinet and you're trying to pit ideas and get the best one. Um, and that's, you know, those are, those are things I think are really important in a, in a, in a presidential candidate. I could really care less about, um, you know, his business background, his, his Twitter persona. Um, you know, how much he's done as a senator, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. those things are kind of less important because the senator's a different job, right? Like, I want you to interview for the job you're going for. Don't tell me what made you good at the job you were in. Um, and I think often that's kind of how our politics perceives the new job. Um, and, well, just to push back on your communication aspect, I think um, one of the things that you had said early on in our friendship was sometimes you just lead by doing it. Because I remember... I think you had, you said you wanted to name this this faction the Madisonian Republicans, and I was like, "Well, what if someone else has that name?" And you said, "So what? You know, it's we're gonna take it, we're gonna claim it, and we're gonna run with it, um, and we'll own it." And I I just appreciate that, and I think that's one of the things that was Washington was so good about was he just he um he just d- you know did it right and, right uh, well, and that and that's part of that like temperament I think with a really great president that you get where especially with Lincoln and Washington, they wanted pitting ideas. They wanted to take their time to make decisions. They were both criticized um, in the wars for their delays in action, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. the famous, uh, is it Henry Wallace, who was the one, he's, I think he's in the Hamilton play. They talk about him, how he like uh, went across. It's not Lawrence. It's Lawrence. I can't remember the name now. I'm sorry. Um, but anyways, where they criticized Washington for his delays. But Realistically, in a moment of need where a decision has to be made very quickly, both Washington and Lincoln were fantastic decision makers, right? And the reason that was is because they would always push it off until they had to, right, mm-hmm. in, in really important moments, understanding that more information makes a better decision. Yeah. Um, so what do, you think, uh, what do you think makes a good House member? Oh, my God, a House member. All right, so I want a House member to be... More of them, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and if you had more of them, you would get this type of House member. Um, so I want them to be... I want them to be humble and reflective of the people they serve, right? So that's going to be dependent on the district. If you have a, a, a rural district, you're going to have a rural type of candidate. If you've got an urban district, you're going to have an urban type of candidate. And if you've got a blended district, which we want to make those smaller so we don't have as many of those, you want somebody that kind of can jump in both sides of that. Um, I want my congressional rep to be very well read. Um, and I want my congressional rep to be an effective communicator, 
They don't have to be an excellent communicator, right? They need to be effective enough to understand, to listen to and inform their people, right? Because that's what we've talked about, what their responsibility is. Um, and they've got to be a student of history, right? If you're going to be a congressional rep, you need to know the history. You need to know the law um, because that's what your job is. Your job is to write law. And if you don't understand that law and you don't understand that history, you're realistically not qualified to be there. Yeah, I mean, that. Uh... You got to know, you got to know the, the ins and outs of what you're getting into. And I think history is the best way to teach that rather than some kind of training session or, uh, uh, whatever you read in the newspaper. I think mean, like actually knowing what, what was there at the beginning and how it's evolved, but, um, where things may have gone astray or not. Um, and I, I think you could say something similar for the Senate. I mean, like you need to know the history of the Senate. You need to know, uh, its practices, why things were there. And I think, um, you know, we talk about some of the, the gridlock and stuff, and some of that's by design because you've got two houses that have to con to work with each other. But um, so much of the gridlock is also because you've you've kind of s individual senators have basically ceded all their power to the the leadership in both houses, where the rules of those bodies allow someone to pretty much dictate what bills come up forward, the committee structure um what gets debated what doesn't get debated i mean like so many times you talk about like so and so has some bill but they can't even get anyone to to um to debate it so they have to that's what they have to go on fox news or cnn or msnbc and try to convince other people to t convince their senator in order to have debate and i think that's such a backwards um way of of thinking about it um and i think you know another thing that's important for a house member and probably senate member is uh again virtue but uh not trying to make a quick buck because i think yeah. it's so easy that to see that you can uh manipulate thing or you've got extra information um and it's funny because we're debating now uh the trying to ban stock trades for um, congressmen but there's a, a story in this senate book that i'm reading where uh hamilton's got this idea for um, buying all the debt from the states and apparently all the, this debt was basically pennies on the dollar and so um, a lot of congressmen who agreed to this scheme uh, made a lot of money on it because they knew uh, beforehand that this was coming through. So they, they, there were boats that went from New York um, as fast as they could down to Georgia so that they could beat the news and buy this, uh, what people thought was worthless debt in order to make a lot of money off it. So it's, it's a uh, unfortunate um, part of, of uh, some of the congressmen that we get, but yeah, um, it's something that I think we, we should strive for. Uh, improving well yeah and and making sure that your congressman is like of those type of people as opposed to like i think that we look at our congressman now and we say all right we got to make sure i mean one of the one of the things that i got that got repeated a lot when we were on the campaign trail together from the congress people so like this is are the the congressional reps uh candidates right this is out of their mouths this is what they're telling people is important in voting they're saying i can raise a lot of money Mm -hmm. And it's like, I get that that is part of the job, but it is their focus, right? And if your focus is raising a lot of money, then you're around a lot of people with a lot of money. And I think that we, you know, there's this, that old quote, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, power is power and money is power. So when you mm -hmm. put those two things together, what do you think you're going to get? You're going to get corruption. Corrupt. And, that's, and that's what's happening. So, you know, if you're a citizen and your congressional rep says, sorry about um, if your congressional rep says, I, uh, 
I raise a lot of money and that's why you should hire me, then you should immediately pause and go, how much do you know about the Constitution? <laughs> you know, like, because like, there's an entire section where we try to divide the emolument, emoluments right, for, the, mm-hmm. for the congressional reps to keep them from making money off of their job um, and being corrupted because of the old system. And for them to just blatantly be like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is important. It, it should be a red flag to everyone. Um, but let's, uh, let's move on to the Senate. Now, we're going to talk about the Senate in a different way because right now we do direct elections by the people. But realistically, we want to say, what does the state want a senator to be, right? Think of the state as a whole and not the individual citizens of the state, but the state, the legislatures, and then what they would want their senator to represent. Um, I'll go ahead and let you start off with this one, John. Well, I think it's obvious it's the state's interest. And I, a really good example in the news right now is Joe Manchin. Um, he knows what's important for West Virginia, and that's uh, coal and oil because they uh, that, that's a big part of, of their um, exports. And so he held people's feet to the fire in an effort to try and get some kind of concessions in some of these bills for his state. Now, it didn't end up succeeding because um, – I guess you know you couldn't get enough people to to come along with him, but he was thinking a lot about what's best for his state, and I think you need more and more of senators to really think about what's best for their state, um, and in an effort to uh, strengthen, I guess, the union as a whole. Um, and I, I would say when you've got direct election of a senator, it almost becomes like a mini presidential election. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you see that so often with senators who really are trying to build a national profile because they know that this is just a stepping stone to the presidency. Um, I, I would say um, a lot of senators uh, are just looking to see what they can do to raise their profile so that when the next presidential election comes, they're in a inside chance to to run for you know to run the same playbook it's a populist election yeah and trying to 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 win a popularity contest and i think um you know going back to a election of senators by state legislatures will not only probably get you better senators but i think it would make your local elections more um pressing i think so many times people complain that no one pays attention to local elections because it doesn't matter you know you don't vote for the school board member because kids aren't in school right now or but I, i i would say that um, based on what we saw in the past two years in Virginia, every single election is incredibly important. Yeah, and the people you get at every level um, are—you know—you need to pay attention to them, regardless of uh, where they stand, because you need competent and virtuous people in those spots. Otherwise, you're going to get in bad situations where real crises appear, and you need someone to kind of try to manage that, and you're not going to get any anywhere. Yeah, I mean. I agree. I want I want my senator to be reflective of the business and commerce of that state, right? Like, how does mm-hmm. that state prosper? Where are the most of the jobs come from, right? If it's Detroit, you're gonna have them, ref- or Detroit, that's not a state, but you, if it's Michigan, right? You uh you understand that's the auto industry, so that senator is gonna be reflective of that business. That's important. Like, that's where I really think business should be involved in government, right? Is kind of at that state level. That's the good medium between the federal and the people. Um, mm-hmm. and I want that senator to be like extremely well-read, but specifically well-read on their state's history. So, like, this idea that some senators live some places and then go to other states just to run to be senator, I know Mitt Romney's done this, but he's from Utah, isn't he, originally? Like, 
I mean, you should live there for a long period of time before you should run for Senate, uh, in my opinion. You shouldn't be able to just move in. I think, didn't Hillary Clinton do that in New York, where she just kind of moved yes. in New York? And then she she moved in months after uh, after getting out of the White House. Um, yeah. And then within two years, she ran for Senate. Because she, again, because she knew she was going to run for president. So right. this it was, was the popular... It was, it, it was just popularity contest, right? And it was never about actually serving the state of New York. Um, and then, what was the other thing I wrote down here? Um, oh, I also want them to be very astute and knowledgeable in their state's land and resources, right? So, like, mm-hmm. if you're, uh, I don't know, I don't know land and resources, right? But you just talked about coal with uh, West Virginia. Right. There's mm-hmm. other states that have similar things. Um, well, yeah, like Virginia, if you talk about Virginia, there's a big shipbuilding industry um, because we've got yeah, some yeah, great no, ports Norfolk. in Norfolk. Um, there's a lot of agriculture because you've got some some great value. I'm in the Shenandoah breadbasket of the, of the south and I, it's still um, very fertile. Uh, you've got a burgeoning wine is, industry. The, that, power, uh, the, the power commerce from northern Virginia, the power mm-hmm. commerce, the, uh, the data centers, commerce. data centers is a big, <laughs> big thing centers, in Virginia. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, all right. Last one. Supreme Court. So who uh, should the Senate pick for the Supreme Court, Jeff? So I want a Supreme Court justice that understands the importance of both common and natural law. Um, mm. And I, I think this is important because our system is written based off of both common and natural law. And I think a lot of the arguments get intertwined and mixed up when when they're made um, because people just they don't study one both they study maybe one or the other or they believe one isn't as valuable as the other and i i would say that they're both equally valuable um and i i would also say that i want my supreme court uh justice to be very well read on u.s law but also roman and british law i think this is really important um and they should they should read as many dissents as possible, and they should also understand that they are a passive power, um, mm-hmm. and that it is not their job to legislate. It's their job to decide on what's brought to them, and they should take as few cases as possible, realistically. They should be forcing the states and the, the Congress to do their job and legislate. Yeah, I think that's a, that is a key point. And, uh, you know... I think not really knowing natural law, not knowing common law, you know, you're not making an argument to say, well, they should just be an originalist and read the constitution. Right. I mean like that, there's a lot of, of assumptions behind that statement. So I think that's what you're getting at. And, and that doesn't mean you have to read the constitution a certain way. It just means that you have to really understand the context for the constitution and the context for the American legal system. Um, and I think, like you said, uh, knowing that you're a passive power and not, a legislature under a different name, you know, that, that, um, that if Congress makes a law or something, you really, you're just thinking about the constitution and does it jive with what the constitution says, um, and not trying to invent things whole cloth or to shoot things down. Um, and I think one of those things is like the, the key thing is like all the powers, uh, not written in the constitution are delegated to the states. Um, but yet over and over again, things come from the states and get shot down when there's no real constitutional amendment or something that says like this is forbidden or, uh, you know, you should you can't um, uh, have a law this way. You know, it, it's all uh, people trying to take their ideology, find the right words, redefine things and then come up with a shoddy argument and uh, and try to pass that off as 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 a, their own law. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
this is a situation like where American citizens don't have a choice in their Supreme Court, right? And like the political parties have made the Supreme Court part of the national discussion over the last, mm-hmm. you know, 30 years or whatever because of the Roe uh, ruling. And then on, you have these senators that go to office and they ask these questions and they, man, especially in the last few Supreme Court, um, you know, interrogations, as I call them now, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we've really kind of gone to a place that's really just dangerous because they're not doing their job. The senators aren't doing their job. Like, I want to know what Neil Gorsuch reads, right? Like, has, has mm-hmm. Neil Gorsuch read Oliver Wendell Holmes' uh, Common Law, right? Has he... And what does he think of it? You know, like, I want to know stuff like this um, as an American citizen. And when it comes to, like, Kavanaugh and the whole really bad situation of, of the accusations and kind of lack their evidence and bringing it up during the questioning, like, Republicans and Democrats need to get that settled before they put that on TV. Like, that's their job to be adults about this. Don't send a man out there to get, like, dressed down and, like, you know, hurt in front of his children and other fellow Americans in public, Mm -hmm. you know, because I think that's go out there and ask him serious questions about law so we can understand what he believes and how he's going to be ruling. Um, So, you know, that he's qualified for the job. But when you're asking him about stuff that happened 30 years ago, it just shows that you didn't do your job. Right. You should have known that before he went out there. You should have all come to an agreement before that happened. And you're just you're misusing our time as American citizens and our resources and our money by not doing your job and you're just showcasing it for all to see in this ugly fashion you know yeah you turn it into another popularity contest you know this is we're going to elect this person and um you know this is what can we deal with that with that decision rather than uh trying to think about it so i think that was a pretty good episode john what do you think i think it was good i uh i enjoyed listening to the uh surprise uh book review a couple days ago that i like that if people didn't check that out that's definitely worth it um and uh, that i was i should have you said at some point you wanted to learn spanish i, I meant to break into spanish during this so we'll, we'll move that oh. to another episode yeah i definitely but, need um, to learn spanish i need to learn we're listening too realistically uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're always learning we were listening to in the car, and uh, one of my sons was very concerned that I was not on the politics episode. And I said, well, this is just a special episode. So, Oh, how old is he? How old is he? Uh, six. No, he's not ready. He's, he's telling him one day. One day he can be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we, uh, you know one thing uh, before we close out here that I, I realized this weekend is, uh, so our, we were supposed to do the thing with my family for the, the kids, and since it got canceled, we decided to do like fun family weekend. And we took the kids, all of our kids, um, minus Gabriel, who's living in Richmond now because he's an adult. Um, we took all the remaining kids to Dave and Buster's on Friday night. Then we took them along with my parents bowling on Saturday during the day because oh. it was my mom's birthday. And then at night, um, my parents took the twins and we just had the, uh, the older ones. We did like a game night and movie night. Well, it's really expensive to take a family of six out mm-hmm. to do things. So this is part of the reason we don't do that. Most of the stuff we do is at home, but this was an occasion where we really wanted to give our children some experiences like out in the world where they're all together working as a team between like the younger ones and the older ones. So we were like, these are good activities, the bowling and that in both circumstances, the older kids help the younger kids. Like it's just a really great parenting exercise. It also gets your kids out in the rest of the world, something important to do, but 
families, big families like ours, don't have the opportunity to do it because budget Dave and Buster's $300. What? Almost $300. You got the lowest like amount on the card you could get. And then we ended up getting food because we were there for so long. Um, and you got kids that get whiny, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then we went bowling, right? And that's it like was 100 eight bucks. Bowling. No, it was $192. Whoa. We bowled two games with eight people, and it was $192. My dad saw the total, and he was like, hey, do you want to split that in half? And I was like, yes, please. Thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be like a good son, take my mom out bowling, and like just didn't even put into the fact of how expensive it was going to be. <laughs> that inflation my man, dad, it's and everything and of course my dad's there to help me because that's what dads are there to do right when mm-hmm. you make a mistake <laughs> but that's yeah i mean i think that's a that's a big deal in our society now don't you think i mean i'm sure you experience the same thing oh yeah i mean we did our kind of big monthly costco shop and it was uh excessive and it was just i think it was buying necessities i mean it's it's um it's not a lot, no frizzle no frivolous purchases because it comes from a grocery list to kind of go over and um but it's uh things are expensive yeah all right well uh this has been a great episode john we got what do we got coming up anything coming up fancy we got a couple articles in the works Mm -hmm. and um there was obviously the surprise uh podcast that my daughter and i did if you want to check it out it's just a book review on don quixote um although it tied a little bit into what we were discussing there was a little bit of power in there right Mm -hmm. um and coupling oh you know one thing i wanted to mention i did you i sent you an article today i don't know if you had a chance to read it but i found this great article and it's by a gentleman named stephen s smith and it's called Note 18, Why 435. <laughs> and it's an incredibly informative article. Um, we should post it in the show notes so people can read it. I shared it to our politics and parenting group as well. Uh, and I posted it on Twitter. Take a look at it. It gives a very detailed history of appropriation in our nation. Um, and I think that it's definitely worth a read. Um, and if, if Stephen ever hears us, I'd, we'd love to have you come on the show and talk more about that because that was a great article. I was really impressed. My favorite part, and I haven't finished it, but my favorite part that I got to was the fight over the calculation, which was fascinating. Oh, yeah. And so um, Jefferson, of course, had a, a scheme that helped Virginia and Madison had a more uh, just a, uh, average scheme where you just kind of try to make things as fair as possible. Yeah, that was Madison. He was the balancer, man. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, and it also shows how important representation is, right? That's because right. it's always been the thing they're fighting over, and they've made us forget about it. Anyways, uh, check out our podcast, uh, Substack, like and subscribe, share, comment. Um, you know, let's have a conversation. Um, anything you'd like to add, John? No, everyone have a good week. We'll see you next time. All right. Peace and love. <laughs>